The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. If anybody should be scared around here, it's us. We're the only two black faces surrounded by a sea of over-caffeinated white people patrolled by the trigger-happy LAPD. So you tell me, why aren't we scared? Because we got guns? You could be right. Hello, hello, my friends, and welcome back to Represent. This month at Slate, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary of being and living on the internet by looking back over the last two decades at some of the events, big and small, that changed the way we look at the world and examining what they mean to us now and could mean to us going forward. And so, for this very special episode, I interviewed a filmmaker who is responsible for what is perhaps one of the most derided Best Picture Oscar winners ever— Writer-director Paul Haggis of 2005's Crash, which you heard a clip from at the top of the show. That movie, you may recall, is a star-studded drama in which Sandra Bullock, Don Cheadle, Terrence Howard, Brendan Fraser, Ludacris, and many more familiar faces crash into one another, both figuratively and literally, while trading in grandiose stereotypes about race. It was generally well-reviewed upon release, but when it beat out Brokeback Mountain for Best Picture, many people were not pleased. Since then, the backlash and genuine disdain for the film lingers, and it's been mocked and hated on for being too self-important and too tone-deaf on how race really works in America. Ta-Nehisi Coates, in a post from The Atlantic in 2009, sums up the critiques against the film most succinctly. He says, If you're angry about race but not particularly interested in understanding why, you probably like Crash. Haggis was willing to talk to me via phone about these criticisms and how he views the film today, and it made for a very interesting conversation, to say the least. Haggis says Crash came from his desire to make a film about intolerance and the desire of strangers to connect. He says Crash was never intended to be a film specifically about race. It was about judging people based on the way we looked. One of the easiest ways to do that is based on someone's race. If you're black, it's pretty obvious you're black. If you're, you know... Uh, so it's it, 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 that became a part of it, and uh, and I thought back to when I was carjacked ten years prior, and I'd always been very curious about these two kids who had stuck you know guns in my face and stolen my car. And what do you remember? What ethnicity or race they were? They're black. Okay. And uh, they were young, and uh, and I'd wondered who they were. Were they best friends? Had they been, you know, hanging out for a long time? Had they just met that night? Who were they? And, and I woke up in the middle of the night thinking about them. And I, and I, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I went over to my computer and started writing it down. And then the, the idea of connectivity came to me and who we bump into. Uh, because, you know, like that's uh, Don Cheadle's speech in the beginning, that we, we crash into people just to feel something in this city because we need that touch of strangers. Mm-hmm. So I asked myself who those kids bumped into. 
Well, it was me and my wife. What did we do? We went home, 2 o'clock in the morning, we changed the locks. And then I asked myself, okay, Mr. Big Liberal, how would you have felt if the kid who came to, to change your locks was Hispanic, was you know, wearing a white T-shirt and baggy pants, had perhaps a, a tattoo that in my ignorance looked like a gang tattoo, would I have felt safe? And I hated that question. Yeah. Because I had to answer it, because the answer was, I don't know, I don't think I would have. I went, oh, God. <laughs> so, so, of course, I put that into you know, the character that was played by Sandra Bullock, put that into her mouth, and then had her politically correct husband you know, trying to, 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 to tell her this was nonsense. She was safe, and she just didn't feel it. And then I said, okay, well, who did the locksmith then bump into? And I just went like that. And that's, that's how the story came out. And uh, so it was less based for me on race and more based on the fact that we all judge others based on these preconceptions of who we think right. they are. And, I mean, so obviously some of this is taken directly from your personal experience. You, like the Sandra Bullock character, were carjacked by two black young black kids. And in the mm-hmm. movie, those two young black men are played by Ludacris and Lorenz Tate. But within this weaving throughout the the movie, we see lots of characters who are of the same background or ethnic background or of the same ilk or whatever you want to say, who are interacting with one another. And I'm curious as to like, how did you go about, did you do any sort of research? or? Oh, yeah. I did a lot of research. I, 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 I spoke to a lot of people. I had sort of town hall meetings at my home. Um, and uh, I had a group of women from South Central who, who uh, came to my house, and, and we talked a lot about, about their view of, of, of Los Angeles. Uh, and and I, I read a great deal. I mean, Deborah Dickerson's book uh, was really eye-opening. I think it was called My America or something like that, uh, about how she grew up as a, as a black woman and did not want the pity of others. She, she wanted to stand on her own, and so she went in, I think it was to the Marine Corps or something, and was very proud of the fact that she identified herself as a Marine and not black, but as a Marine, and, and had really truly looked down on, on, on the members of her family and the others around her who, uh, who, more, who more associated themselves with the black community. And I thought that a fascinating aspect, and so that came Don Cheadle's story. Mm. Um, there was other things. For example, I was walking, I was working on the Sony lot, producing a television show. And I was walking from my office towards uh, the, the stage, and I saw the director we had that week, and he was standing and talking to two white producers. And as I got closer, I realized that one of the producers was telling a joke. As I got quite close, I realized it was a racist joke that he was telling to this black director. And before I could say, shut up, you fucking asshole, I saw the black director slap the, uh, the, the, the producer on the, on the shoulder as if this is, and, and laugh and turn and walk back to the stage. Mm. And I asked myself, what piece of that man's soul did he just eat to keep his job? Mm. And that became the the, uh, the Terrence Howard story, right? So there, yeah, there's a there's a moment. In, in Terrence Howard's character he plays a movie 
He's a movie director, correct? He is yeah, a movie television director. director. Yeah, so he's a television director and he's on set and Tony Danza shows up and then tells him that one of the characters is... He isn't is, black enough. Yeah. yeah. Which is another thing I've heard, and that's, that's another quote that came to me at another place when I was doing a, a, a television show. I think it was for Nell Carter back in the day, and one of the characters just... I don't know. <laughs> the network executive said, you know, can you have him... I don't hate to say this, but can you have him talk more black? A lot of these things spilled out of, of, of personal experience and then were you know, transferred to, to others. But where I was truly talking about... For the most part, I was asking myself questions because I didn't want to do a movie that pointed the finger at those terrible racists down south or someplace else because we're really good in America at pointing a finger. That finger almost never gets pointed back at ourselves. You've said that you were looking at it as you're, you're looking into yourself as a quote-unquote good white liberal and, and mm-hmm. trying to question these things. And just to backtrack a bit to what you were saying earlier about you know, being on the set with Nell Carter and having someone say she wasn't talking black enough. Was that, was that, do you ever feel any, for lack of a better word, guilt? Or do you feel some onus for, did, did you say anything or did you like push back enough? No, or do you I, feel I made as the, if, I mean, the, the, uh, uh, the network executive feel like an idiot, which I probably shouldn't have done. Uh, you know, so, you know, um, I'm not always the best in yeah. situations like that. Yeah, and I mean, it also feels like, in a way, you were pointing with that scene and having Terrence Howard be that director, you were sort of pointing a, a sort of lens at the industry itself. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, and I mean, what do you? where do you think the... Do you think the industry is better now as it is in terms of dealing with these things or from what you've witnessed? Um, well, I, I think, I, I mean, you saw the uproar a couple of years ago and, and last year with Oscar So White. And, you know, I, I think actually the, the Academy was, was not the correct target in this case um, because if you start giving awards to people based on the color of their skin, then that's just tokenism. And that's the wrong way to move forward. That's moving backwards. Mm-hmm. But where, there, where they were correct, where that movement was correct, is the fact that people of color and women just aren't getting the roles that they deserve because they're either people of color or women. And I find that, when I was casting Crash, I found that. Not because of their color, but because they'd go, well, that person just isn't worth enough in Spain, Bulgaria, or wherever it is I had to sell this thing. So I had to go to somebody else. I had wonderful, wonderful actors who wanted to do this. And just, I just tell them, I'm sorry, you're just not worth enough. <laughs> and when uh, the first person I put on was Don Cheadle. Don's one of our finest actors. And, uh, and I brought him on, I asked him to produce, and I asked him to, to play one of the two roles, either one he wanted. And then my producer told me, well, you know, he's not worth anything in Europe. <laughs> but okay, well, who is? And then we mm. start going down the list about who is. And those were white men and women uh, who were. And that's the way it is even now when I'm casting. Yeah. Every independent producer runs into this at some time or other. You have a short list of people who can get your movie financed uh, who are worth this much here. And, and they, they tell you how much they're worth. And when you run into uh, often, there's, there's, what, two or three black actors who, if you put them in something, well, they, the, the, the foreign buyers will give you money. That's shameful. And that's still the case. Right. You've got Will Smith, Denzel Washington, maybe Jamie Foxx. I'm not sure what there his... There you go. You've got three. Yeah. And then that's pretty much it. 
I mean, what do you, what power do you have, if any, as as a writer director to challenge that? Well, I did there. The first person I cast was was Don Cheadle, even though that's that's not the way you're supposed to go about these things. You're supposed to cast the person who. Uh, who is worth the most first. Mm. I kind of did it backwards. The last two people I got were Sandra Bullock and, and Brendan Fraser. Brendan was the last to come on. Brendan, who is, is who greenlighted that movie, getting Brendan Fraser in, made that movie go. Interesting. So, and that was all backwards. That was just a few weeks, like three weeks before I started shooting. Mm-hmm. And I had something like 11 movie stars at that point, or people that, you know, you and I would consider movie stars, even if the foreign buyers didn't. Um, and uh, finally, because of George of the Jungle uh, doing well overseas. And I got Brendan and the movie got made. Mm. Were you, before, when the movie came out and around the time of the Oscars, and are you now aware of sort of the criticisms the movie has received? Oh, for? of course. Yeah, and, and in regards to specifically, like, it, how it addresses race, and, and how have you processed these criticisms? Like, what what did you if well, take I, away from I, it? I mean, I, two ways. I mean, there's, there's, there's always valid criticism about anything and I'm often asked do you think Crash should have was the best movie of the year right uh, a reporter asked me that last year what's the what's the director supposed to say to that <laughs> yes my film was much better than all the other films thank you very much for asking no I was thrilled to be nominated this is a little film we never thought we'd even get it made mm-hmm. if we got it made we didn't think anyone would ever see it it would never get distribution and once it did we certainly never thought we'd get awards uh, and so to be nominated for that, I was so thrilling to be in the group of those other incredible movies that were made that year, uh, was, was thrilling. Um, and when people started just before the Oscars, everyone was saying, you know, Crash has a good shot. And I go, don't be ridiculous. We have no shot. Thank you very much. Then we won. I was flabbergasted because, I mean, good night and good luck, Capote, I mean, uh, Munich, and, and, and uh, Brokeback Mountain, those are great films, well-written films, beautifully directed. Why do you think that that happened, that you, you won? Like, well, what's... I know there's the theories that, that Annie and others have put forward that the, that the, the uh, uh, <laughs> I, I kind of find humorous that the, uh, that, uh, the Academy is homophobic. Right. I, I thought that's kind of hysterical. It's sort of like saying Broadway is homophobic. We are the gay community is is, is 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 so important to the creative process in Los Angeles. It is. It, there were what three other? How many? How many other films there uh, that year? Uh, two others at least uh, that were nominated that had openly gay protagonists. Now, how does the film get nominated that and you know, uh, if, if we're so homophobic? Well, I think to be fair, part of, part of the the idea is that, yes, they're, they're, like I agree with you, like people in the arts, there are so many gay people within the arts, but there is there is some sort of stigma, I think, still towards having, and especially 10 years ago, there is still a stigma to having a big grand romance centered around two men like that was it was it was rare so i i mean maybe oh, saying, yeah, sure no no yeah. i was a very brave film i'm not saying it wasn't uh, i have nothing no no it's, I, I love the film and it's very brave i'm not saying that but it suggests that the reason one film won over the other is because the academy is homophobic is just nonsense 
<laughs> it's just, it's just, I, I, and, and I have never said uh, or anything about uh, people being poor losers. That's, it's, it's, it's ridiculous the competition we have anyways. It shouldn't be a competition. I hate the fact that one film is comparing it to another uh, in, in any way. When people ask me for my list of top, uh, my favorite films, I will never tell them because it's impossible. How can you compare Susan Came to Bringing Up Baby? Or anything you can't. Uh, so another criticism was that the the Academy voters, if they weren't homophobic, they at least wanted to sort of pat them on the pat themselves on the back for nominating a movie about race and seeming progressive. And but then why do we have? If that's the case, then why do we have the Oscar so white thing going on now? You well, can't argue everything from every direction. Well, it comes in the the Oscar so white thing comes in waves. I mean, we have different. There are times when people of color are flourishing and then usually that recedes for a few years. You, you, you can look at televisions and see that. I mean, there were years where there were no black sitcoms and definitely no Asian sitcoms. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it, I mean, so do you, do you, I guess you don't really, you don't, that's not something you sort no, of. No, I think it's ludicrous. I think it's completely ludicrous. I mean, because, I mean, uh, because Ernest Borgnine said he didn't like the movie, suddenly that represents everybody. It's nonsense. <laughs> it's like you won't watch a gay cowboy movie and therefore everyone won't watch a gay cowboy movie? No. Hmm. I'm sorry. It was a great film. Ang Lee's a great director. It was a beautiful script and, and a great drama, like all the other you know, uh, uh, nominees were. People love a story, <laughs> and, uh, and that's the one that's being told. Uh, it's true. I don't know. I don't get a lot of people coming up to me saying they hate Crash. Uh, I, I read it on the Internet, but every time someone walks up to me, of course, they're going to always say nice things to my face, but it's a film that still moves people and still, and still means something, especially now, I think they say. Well, yeah, I'd be curious to hear like, what some of the, the audience members have said to you about the, the movie over the years, putting aside the critics. Oh, as you know, I remember when we went out to promote this film, and this happened more than once. remember one instance, we, Don Cheadle and Matt Dillon and I were... Uh, and Bobby Moresco were standing at the side of a theater waiting for the Q&A when we were promoting and someone, I don't know where the hell we were. You know, when you all stand there, you come in for the last two minutes of the movie and you wait until the credits roll and go up and do a Q&A or something because it's an independent film, it's the only way to sell it. So I remember standing there against the wall and the moment uh, the film ended, as the first credit roll, this huge white guy stood up and started coming down the aisle. And he had long blonde hair like a biker. He had a, a leather jacket on his shirt that was open to his waist and chains around his neck. And, and then he, he caught a look at Don and at Matt and stopped at me and said, you have something to do with this movie? <laughs> I wanted to say no and run. But I said, yeah. He said, movie just changed my life and walked out. That happened so many times in which people of, of, of white, black, Hispanic have come up to me and said that movie was incredibly important to me and my family. It really it started dialogue. It, it made us talk about things we weren't talking about before. I, I didn't even set out to do a movie. I wanted to do a social experiment. I wanted to bring people in the dark into a theater and start showing them stereotypes reinforce every stereotype they ever thought about other people and say, shh, it's okay. I know you're liberal. I know you're not supposed to do this, but it's dark. No one can see you. You can laugh. We all know Hispanics park their cars on the lawn, right? We all know Asians can't drive. It's okay. You can laugh. It's fine. No one's going to see. 
And then as soon as I made you comfortable, that I wasn't going to challenge you. I was going to reinforce all these horrible things you think about others. They're sort of funny and whatever. Then I could start twisting you around in the chair until when you left, you were asking questions about yourself and the way that you deal with others. And I think the movie does that. Okay. Whether it's a good film or not, I don't know. It's a mm-hmm. good social experiment. So the characters are deliberately written in broad strokes. And yes. so did you... Well, at least at the beginning, in the first... In the first third of the film. Mm-hmm. So, did you feel that audiences needed to see the most egregious forms of racism and prejudice? Well, they and- weren't the most egregious forms, and none of those are egregious. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. I mean, the, the rape of Stan- Tanny Newton is pretty damn outrageous yes, and, yeah. and egregious, but it's not something that is out of the ordinary. Uh, it is uh, humiliating a, a black woman in front of her husband, sadly, is not something that's out of the ordinary when you, when you come to major police. You know, engagements in, in, in cities. Um, uh, that's one of the nicer things that can happen to a, uh, to, to a black couple, usually one of the men getting shot. So, uh, so I, I didn't go for the shootings. I didn't uh, go for, I, I wanted to go for things that could happen and did happen every day in L.A. In, yeah, I guess that's another, just to sort of pivot back around to sort of the the critiques that people have given. There's a tweet earlier this year that went up by actor Rob Delaney. It was like a tongue-in-cheek tweet, and this happened around the time of Oscar So White. And his tweet was, quote, people mad that no black actors were nominated for Oscars seem to be forgetting that racism was cured 12 years ago by the film Crash. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah, and, and it's... I guess part of part of that that tweet is that pe- the the film can seem like things happen very quickly. It only takes place on a day and a half, like a day and a half, I think. Mm-hmm. But nothing gets cured. Nothing gets saved. There isn't. <laughs> you know, the thing is that that was, that was very funny. Is that I, I purposely made a film in which there was no Act One and no Act Three. That you just I started people in crisis, and then as soon as they glimpsed who they actually were, their plot ended. They didn't go on the next day. Sondra Bullock didn't come and be the, suddenly start being best friends with her housekeeper. I bet she comes down in the morning and is exactly the same. And people do small things, or, or in some case, larger things, with, with Ryan Philippe, in which he, he shoots somebody. But how does he deal with that? I don't know. He probably blames the victim. There's, there, there's, if, if people wanted to, to suggest that... I mean, I was, that reminded me of something that I think the Hollywood Reporter said when the, when the movie came out. And that was, you know, if this film had happened, and I'm paraphrasing, I can't really remember the review, but it was something like, if this film had come out 10 years ago, we'd call it brave. But we don't have these problems anymore. Now, while I was reading that review, or the, the, um, there was what was described as a race riot at Santa Monica High, same day. So as liberals, we love to live in a state of denial. We love to think that we fixed shit. We don't fix anything. We throw a coat of paint over it, you know, and and until it it looks pretty enough and we walk away. Yeah, I mean, I guess... I wonder what it would have been like, and obviously this is is your movie and would have, could have, would have, should have, but the... I, I worry about what the, the message people take away in thinking that... You know, if if you slip and fall and then you you like your maid helps you that all of a sudden, like these things will easily be settled. And well, anybody who reads that into that is an idiot. I mean, I mean, that's, that's suddenly just because a white person suddenly says that you're my best friend. That's pathetic. If you read that as, as something that is anything other than 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 pathetic. I mean, certainly the maid didn't. I mean, look in her face is who the hell do you think you are, lady? 
Mm. <laughs> a rich, privileged woman. So, I mean, I, I did this, the same thing was with Million Dollar Baby. You know, at the end of that, there's a movie about girl boxing and euthanasia, so no one wanted to make that film uh, and so, until Clint came along. But you know, at the end of that film, there's a narration in which uh, uh, the, the, the character played by Morgan Freeman, Scrap, is talking about the fact of what he hopes happened. He hopes that he found some peace. And you see an exterior shot of a, uh, a, a, a diner where they once were. And there's a figure in there, and you kind of hope that's him. But everyone said, oh, yeah, yeah, he did. He went back, et cetera. No, no, no. That's a hope that someone can find peace. It's, it's not a, a lovely uh, and, and beautiful resolution. But people want to read into a lot of things and, and, put their, and, and place happy endings on things where there aren't. There weren't a lot of happy endings in Crash. Hmm. Yeah. I, I guess I guess I, I sort of disagree in just the fact that I especially with the, the ludicrous role who I can't remember his name. Ludicrous uh, didn't sell some kids to slavery so <laughs> and let them go and then call and, and, and called them chinks or something as he as, as as they walked away. He still thought they were Chinese. Right. And a cop who you love can shoot an unarmed black child. Yeah. And and Ryan Phillippe is I feel like he sort of represents in many ways like that that liberal progressive you're talking about the denial that state of denial but even but also so does so does the uh, uh so does uh don Cheadle's character who is who is you know and because i also want to talk about class in america and don Cheadle, having risen to whatever class we would call him in america uh, had complete disdain for his mother had disdain for his brother and learned in this that you know that you know, sat down there and realized how arrogant he had been and had lost his brother and his mother by his arrogance. Now that's not a racial statement, but it is a statement about, as I said, arrogance and intolerance. And that character didn't end well. I mean, I'd, I'd sort of point out point out the ones who did. <laughs> you know. I guess another thing I'd like to ask you is: Has the state of today's socio-political climate? with the Black Lives Matter movement, Trump's anti-Muslim and anti-Latino campaigns, have they made you reflect upon the message you were sending in Crash differently in any way? Or? That we should be perhaps more tolerant of each other? No. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's um, I think we're less tolerant of everything you see what's happening in America with the election. The, mm-hmm. the intolerance in this country has risen, is scary, is now becoming public. At least when you know, I was doing Crash, people were shamed, ashamed of saying certain things. Now we have a presidential candidate who is saying it out loud, and we have people who are applauding him and saying even worse things. And we have him being supported by you know, David Duke and other KKK members, and him refusing to even say those are heinous human beings. I mean, no, this country's gotten worse. And, uh, and intolerance... Uh, if anything, has not been solved by my movie. But you know, I would like to think I could. It's like in the Valley of Ella, I tried to stop a war. I didn't do a very good job with that one. So. Mm-hmm. In, in light of that, is there anything you would have done differently? Were you making this film today? Oh, oh God, if I made this film the next week, I would have done the whole thing differently. You know, we have, as artists, we really need to be fearless and be willing to make huge mistakes. <laughs> and Crash could have been a huge mistake. Uh, when it came out, I was, I was terrified. I took it to my friend Anita Addison, who I dedicated the film to, who was, who was the first black 
female ex- senior female executive at a network, and had always been a sort of a hero of mine and, uh, and a mentor. And I had her read it because I said, uh, Anita, uh, am I, if I get this wrong, I, I think I'm going to be the poster boy for the KKK. Um, and she said, no, Paul, you have to make this movie. She's the one who gave me the line, uh, because I remember she, used to, she said to me, uh, uh, she drove her to Santa Monica on her motorcycle to see me, and she pulled up in a Harley, and she said, you know, Santa Monica, Toluca Lake, Brentwood, these are scary-ass places for a black woman to find herself. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, so you, you, you start looking at world, the world from that perspective. That's what I tried to do with Crash look at it from someone else's perspective and and uh and then it was a fable it's not it was never intended to be anything other than a fable um uh but uh i guess people love to take things literally and is there any just just off the top of your head is there any one moment or one character you would have done differently or any anything you would add to it to sort of reflect the times we live in now mm-hmm. I would make a different movie now uh, because we're in a different place. So no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't tweak it. I'd make a different film. Hmm. And are there any current shows or films you've seen recently that you think are particularly smart in handling race and and the way we are dealing with it? I, I don't know. It, it, it's hard. it's a very difficult subject to deal with, and we tend to deal with it historically rather than 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 in the present. Uh, I mean, I've, I've always been admired Spike Lee's movies and the way he's dealt with it. Um, uh, and, and it's going back 20 years. Um, you, you can't find someone who's done it better than him. Um, well, maybe you can, but that's my own personal opinion. Um, I, I don't know. It, uh, it, it, it's a, it remains a very, very difficult subject and not one that's easy to get financed or funded. People don't run out and go, yes, no one's coming to me and say, let's make Crash 2. <laughs> or, or, or coming to me and say, hey, do you want to do another uh, movie about race? No, no one's saying that. And what impact... Do you think that Crash had on the way we talk about race on film? I have no idea. Uh, it's sort of not my place to, to, to suggest that. That's for wiser folks. It certainly started people talking, and some hated it, some loved it, some, but people are still talking about it, so it did its job. Mm. Well, thank you again so much for coming on and talking to me about Crash, and I really appreciate it, Paul. It was a terrific conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, that was something. What I took away from that conversation is that Haggis has clearly been thinking about Crash for years. He's aware of all the criticisms from the Oscar stuff to the way in which the film blatantly traffics in stereotypes. Because of this, he has answers readily available for those critics, answers that sometimes can feel a bit dismissive of very real concerns from viewers about how people of color are portrayed. At the same time, I appreciate Haggis' candor in our conversation, even if I still fundamentally believe that Sandra Bullock embracing her Latina maid and Ludacris taking a stand against human trafficking and Crash are character arcs too conveniently and ridiculously rendered. I do wonder how Crash would be received were it made and released today in the exact form that it was then. It seems likely, considering our current cultural climate, that a 2016 Crash would face tough critics from the outset in the blogosphere and social media, or at the very least, be given a bit of a side-eye. A decade ago, the majority of the folks doing the talking about movies were professional film critics, most of them white and male. And to be fair, some of them, like David Edelstein at Slate, were never on board with Crash back then either. But today, as we've witnessed with Oscar So White, nearly every new movie can be subject to scrutiny by a greater variety of thinkers and critics 
And even if Hollywood continues to be slow in its progress of on-screen representation, at least it's being called out on it more often. So what do y'all think? Does Crash get piled on too much, or is the continued ribbing still justified? Let us know via Twitter and Facebook at Slate Represent, and you can check out more stories from Slate's 20th anniversary at slate.com slash 20. As always, thanks so much for tuning in. Represent is produced by the lovely and amazing Marilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtig. Andy Bars is chief content officer of Panoply. And music is performed by the awesome San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. 